Welcome to Shanghai Zan, a raw and lively regular debate about China tech, advertising, creativity, platforms, and the intersection of it all. Join us each session for timely and relevant discussions on all things China marketing. We'll be joined by an entire spectrum of China experts. You can learn more about Shanghai Zan at our website, johnstation.com. That's Z H A N Station. Com. Coming to you directly from the city of Shanghai. I'm Bryce Whitwam, and I'm Ali Kazmi. In today's episode, we are continuing our series on the Shanghai coronavirus lockdown. Now, for some, going into its fourth week by the time this podcast is released, we are recording this episode on Thursday, April seventh. And the reason I give the dates is because it seems that it's a moving target, and things change constantly. And today we will discuss the COVID lockdown, how it's impacting China and the world's supply chain. There's been reports of a massive number of ships awaiting processing, and pardon the pun, but we've heard that it, when it comes to the global supply chain, when Shanghai sneezes, the world catches a cold. Shanghai, by the way, is the world's largest and busiest container port, handling 43.3 million TEUs. That's 20-foot equivalent units in 2021, and for our American friends, Los Angeles port is about 9.5 million units, making Shanghai over four times bigger than Los Angeles. And seven out of ten of the world's busiest ports are in China. We are today joined by Cameron Johnson, a China industry veteran and almost 20 years managerial experience across various industries. He currently drives the consulting and advising as head of APAC strategy for FAO Global. He's also an adjunct professor at NYU Shanghai, as well as a board of governor for the American Chamber of Commerce in Shanghai. Cameron, welcome to Shanghai Zan. Thanks, Bryce and Ali, for having me. Looking forward to our conversation today. And before we get started, we have to remind everyone that if you like the show, please give us a five-star review on your favorite platform. Apple Podcasts or Spotify both have places to leave reviews. If you donate five dollars to support our show on Patreon, you will receive a cool Shanghai Zan branded sticker. And for ten dollars a month, you can get a cool branded coffee mug. You can get one of those coffee mugs if even if you live in China or if you live、uh, elsewhere. It's cool gear, and we really appreciate you supporting the show. Let's start off with getting a sense、uh, of the current business environment and the lockdown impact. Cameron, since you were here in 2020 for the first lockdown, how does this compare to the one、uh, in 2020 in terms of business operations? So two years ago, the impact was really on the production side. If we remember, all of the factories were closed; nothing was open. On this time, though, production, at least as of today, is still ongoing. But the impact on the logistics side: factories can't ship, customers can't receive. A product can't get to port. These are the real issues that we're facing today. What we didn't know in 2020, but now do, is that you know how the virus operates. And so what we're seeing now really is companies are taking that into account. So it's a lot more work from home. It's a lot more companies who are doing what we would call a closed loop, where they have people、uh, either live in the facility like GM currently does to continue production, because a lot of these. Companies can't stop production,、uh, whether it's just for how the supply chains work or their own processes. It's very difficult to get them going again if they just start from zero again.、Um, the other thing is that what we're seeing is that this is not something that is temporary; has an end date. In 
everything here was just locked down for about four to five weeks, and then eventually things kind of eased up over time. But in this case, that's actually not what, what's happening. The government uh, has actually stayed locked down, and we have no end in sight. We've heard that the supply chain is deeply impacted by the lockdown, as you just mentioned, some of those examples. As I mentioned, ships cannot be processed. What do you think the impact is on companies shipping from China globally? Are their ships being diverted to other ports? Are, are they finding alternative means to get things out? Or is it completely shut down? I mean, China's a big country. Is it business as usual for other ports? Normally, as you rightly said, there's seven of the largest and busiest ports in the world are here. Shanghai is still going. There are ships coming in and out. The problem is the trucking. Their logistics are screwed up all across the Shanghai area. There is some stuff that's been rerouted to Ningbo or to other ports in the north, uh, like Qingdao, but they're still stuck, uh, generally, if they're anywhere in the Shanghai area. And one of the biggest challenges at the moment is there are trucks on the highway, but they can't deliver locally due to the local go uh, government COVID policies. So I'll give an example. Uh, some locations requ require a PCR test within 48 hours. Others, an antigen test within 24 hours. And it all depends on your location. There's no uniformity across any of the regulations. When a truck gets off the highway, they have to show their COVID tests, that they're negative of COVID. And if they don't, sometimes they're either put in quarantine automatically or they're just refused to, to exit the highway. And so one of the issues we've seen is because they're literally testing 30 million people almost daily in Shanghai is that the system is overwhelmed. And so, you know, even a couple of weeks ago, if you were a driver and you got tested, let's say in Hangzhou and you were going into Shanghai, you'd have your test results in maybe half a day if you were lucky, but you would still have enough lead time as you were on your way to the city that the results would eventually show up. That is just not happening at the moment because the system is so overwhelmed. The other thing is now a lot of drivers are just refusing to drive anywhere if it's not local, because locally they probably have taken tests and they're more confident perhaps and the results will show up on their phone than not so much if they go to another area. So we're actually seeing drivers stop in terms of driving, uh, even outside of their home areas. And so this, this at the moment is the biggest issue that we're seeing. Ships are still coming and going. Customs is still somewhat operational, but it's just really that nothing is actually getting to the port. I, I know that you mentioned that there is really, at this point, no end in sight. But let's assume that things will start opening up on the 18th of April. I mean, that's the date that we've been told in my community that things will start to open up. Do you suspect then that things will get back to normal quickly or it will have a long-term impact? Yeah, so the issues at the moment really are domestic, right? It's not an external source, meaning it's not uh, shipments or materials coming from overseas. The issues are really uh, domestically, particularly in the logistics front. So if we're lucky, um, and I actually have a different opinion on when we'll be released, but it should, it should clear up fairly quickly because the government will move mountains to get everything out of the way. They will streamline testing processes so drivers can get in and out. They will assist um, logistics companies in getting uh, priority goods such as medical supplies or semiconductor supplies uh, in and out of the ports or warehouses or wherever they may be. So that actually, I think, will clear itself up within, I'd say, probably six to eight weeks, which is pretty short given the amount of stress on the system. And you don't think April 18th is going to happen? If you look at what's happening, as cases are going up, and with the zero dynamic zero COVID is what they're calling it now, they're really looking for almost no cases to occur. 
Uh, and beyond that, they're also looking at how stressed is the system in, in general. So how stressed is the hospital system? Because that is the one issue that they're looking at. The second thing is we do know they're looking at not just number of cases, asymptomatic versus ill, but they're also looking at the number of deaths. And there hasn't been really hardly any. I think there's been only a few recorded. The other thing is, is that now it has become, you know, China's whole mantra the last two years is we conquered COVID. It did not come here. It did not disrupt us. So now it's actually seen as a political thing that has to be conquered. So I think that will also change some of that dynamic is when we'll be able to get out of this lockdown. I've seen the recent press releases or the recent press releases from from the government and the Communist Party. They have really ratcheting up the rhetoric, very much about call to arms and very much something that I've never only rarely seen in China since living here for the past 20 years. It seems very much that uh, China's at war with COVID. But at the same time, I also think that there's got to be at least some ease of the, the population in terms of how much they can endure a full lockdown in you know, China's, arguably China's most uh, important economic city. Yeah, I think you bring up a great point. I mean, one of the things, and this is, you know, I've been in China since I was a kid. Um, I've been in Ch Shanghai itself almost 20 years. This is the first time I ever remember, having lived here, that people are scared. And they're not just scared about when will this win, but they're scared about getting food. And again, that hasn't happened in this city for two generations. And so, you know, what you're really seeing is that, as you really pointed out, is a new dynamic. And the government has come in and taken over, you know, a lot of the food stores uh, they're trying to distribute, which I think is a credit to them. But there is a lot of consternation of how to get it, when to get it, who's going to get it. And the old way, or the not old way, it was a new way, but, you know, where we, we'd all go online, we'd order food off of our our apps, or we just walk into a store and get a few things. And then it would, or if we ordered something, it would be delivered to our house in a half hour. All of that is gone right now. And, you know, even this morning I woke up, I had ordered a bunch of stuff from Homa, which is, uh, was that little hippo that Alibaba has kind of their food, um, their food program, their food business. And I was told that, well, all the delivery drivers yesterday, uh, they worked until 11 and they were too tired, so they'll have to finish delivering yesterday's things today, so we might get something on Saturday. And that worries a lot of people, and a lot of people are scared. And I haven't seen that before. One of the interesting things that has happened, though, in all the little communities, I'm in a community of about five or 6,000 people, is there's a huge barter system that's come up out of nowhere. So people are trading all kinds of things, whether it's food or pens um, my bookshelf has a lot less titles on it these days, uh, particularly because I'm the only foreigner here in the compound. And I guess people are enjoying some of the books I have. So it's one of the interesting, I would say, unique aspects of the current situation. We finally found a food source through TikTok, of all things. I never, ever imagined that we'd be buying food off of, of Douyin or TikTok. Uh, but sure enough, uh, one of the neighbors found it. And uh, it, it just completely cracked me up. We, we actually bought, my wife bought a separate bag of groceries of vegetables for our lowly security guards and, and the guys that work uh, in the compound for us. When we delivered the food to them, they were like, oh, thank God you're here. We had nothing to eat tomorrow. As I think I mentioned this on LinkedIn, there are three wood fire pizza joints within a five minute walk of my home. And I'm not starting to sound elitist, but this is a very wealthy city and food is of massive abundance here. Imagine going from, from what it was before to now is, is unbelievable. 
Ali, have you had any uh, food challenges? Have you heard any stories? And how are people coping with it Where, from your, your point of view? No, we've been quite fortunate, actually. If you remember from the last podcast, we kind of mentioned that we dropped by Costco, bought, bought ourselves a bunch of groceries. It's just the two of us, so it's kind of easier for us to manage. I think for our compound, uh, specifically, they're, they're, they're managing the, the delivery of uh, groceries on, on an almost daily basis to all the residents in our building uh, quite effectively. Um, we have a WeChat group. Uh, and in that group, there is a secret bundle. You don't necessarily know what vegetables you will get the following day, but there is a there is a choice of number of vegetables that you can uh, purchase from within that group. You know, we make a pick and the, the vegetables get delivered downstairs to the lobby of our apartment building. I think we're probably one of the lucky ones. Uh, I've been also fortunate um, to have my employer uh, reach out to myself and I would imagine to all of the other 10,000 people that work for them on whether or not you know they're experiencing any food short shortages. We are on our last bottle of the last five liter bottle of water. So let's see how next week pans out, but so far so good. We've also heard reports about the international companies are considering decoupling China from their manufacturing center. Now this has been going on for a while. And there's been talk uh, in the past that this is going to happen. According to a recent AmCham China survey, they said 80% of manufacturers report slowed down or, or reduced production, which is in line with what you've has told us. But the 20% of these manufacturers said they were would move operations out of China if COVID-19 restrictions remain, which seems very likely they will. Do you think this situation will lead to a further decoupling of manufacturing in China? Do you think that foreign companies will downsize here? Oh, yeah, it's a really challenging situation. Um, and, and, as we discussed earlier, this, the challenge this time is around is not necessarily production, but logistics, just getting stuff to market. You know, from a manufacturer point of view, you know, you usually invoice your goods when it leaves the warehouse or the factory. So it's not just a logistics issue. It, uh, you know, it, it gets down into it's also cash flow, sales, revenue, you know, all these other things that get tied up into it. The other thing is uh, with that, uh, one of the restrictions is mobility. You know, it's not just uh, logistics, it's they can't get staff in. Um, one of the factories I talked to last week, they have a third of their staff that just can't get in because they're in quarantine or they're at home and they can't get into work because transportation shut down. Uh, so these are all issues that are really affecting businesses. And, and to be honest, the AmCham survey last week, and I would encourage everybody to look at it because it does offer some interesting insights. I think it's the real, at least from what I've seen, the real first major crack in the dam of foreign businesses here who are now saying, hey, if restrictions don't end or we don't see a light at the end of the tunnel, we may need to start looking at other options. This doesn't mean that they're going to leave China. But what I do think it means is that, you know, if you're going to put additional investment into facilities here or Mexico or Southeast Asia, you're going to think twice now about doing that. In terms of the decoupling, China and the U.S. have traded since 1784. So that's almost 250 years. And there's been a lot of up and downs during that time. And and just to give your, your listeners some numbers, for all the headlines about decoupling or U.S.-China relations, U.S. exports last year to China, 2021, grew 21% to $150 billion. That's more than any other time in history. And the U.S. imported about uh, 505 
billion dollars or so from China, also the most in history. You know, financial flows haven't slowed down. Our biggest banks, Goldman Sachs, JP Morgan, and so on, they're all setting up huge scale operations in the country. So where's the decoupling? Right? That's kind of, you know, from the data that doesn't appear to be. We've also seen in the overall FDI into China, it hasn't decreased. In 2020, China had a record year of 163 billion. And last year, 2021, it was another record year of 179 billion. And so when you look at the coupling, uh, a lot of what they're looking at now is national security issues, not putting all of the eggs in one basket. And so we do see some production, such as textiles, lower level manufacturing goods, those are starting to move. You know, here in my work, uh, we've actually done a several projects about supply chain feasibility. If they were moved or if we moved a part of it, um, how would we do that? What are the repercussions from doing that? Uh, and some companies actually are looking at a hub and spoke approach where China would be the main producer, right? They'd have a main factory in China, but then they'd have a satellite production in Southeast Asia, maybe Eastern Europe or Latin America to kind of spread out the risk a bit and also serve those markets more directly. But the reality is, at least at the moment, we're not seeing major changes. But I think this, you know, this latest survey was a bit of an eye opener for me because it shows that people are now starting to consider it. You know, China, and I'll, I'm just going to put this in, Bryce, just for you so you can kind of think about it. So when you look at a, a manufacturing powerhouse, right, what does it take for a country to be a manufacturing powerhouse? Well, you need basically five things. You need an ecosystem of suppliers, raw materials, favorable policies, educated and skilled talent, and advanced infrastructure. Now, China has all of that over many decades of development. With that, most countries do not have all of those five. The U.S. does, uh, Germany does, but most do not have all of them. They have some of them, but not all of them. So China still remains a formidable part of the global supply chain. The other thing is it's not practical to pick up your supply chain and carry it over like you would a cup of coffee. The world doesn't work like that. And so what you really see is, uh, getting back to your question about potential moving people, if they have a facility here or they're doing large operations here, they'll still keep doing that but they may not invest more as much into that as they might have. And they'll shift that investment into other areas, perhaps Southeast Asia, you know, Eastern Europe or Latin America. Is there a specific industry that you think is going to be most affected um, and that might be prioritizing this sort of hub and spoke approach to uh, manufacturing logistics? That's a great question. I think a lot of companies who, you know, uh, textile, shoes, those are the obvious ones because a lot of them have moved already. They still have manufacturing here. Nike, for example, still has manufacturing here, but they also have a lot of manufacturing now in uh, Vietnam. Uh, Apple, uh, which open or is about to open up a $250, $300 million facility in Vietnam, is starting to spread some of that out. And again, it's not, quote unquote, they're leaving China. It's actually that they're just expanding operations other places, which makes sense. You know, you don't want to necessarily um, put all your eggs in one basket. The other thing that is shifting in Asia is the RCEP agreement. And the RCEP are the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership Agreement, which went into effect January 1st, essentially is a trade agreement signed by 11 countries in Asia. It's Japan, South Korea, China, um, the ASEAN countries and Australia, New Zealand, I'm sure I'm missing one in there. But basically, the purpose of that agreement is to remove trade barriers, whether they're tariffs or regulations, so countries can trade more easily with each other. So one of the things that has been discussed is Japanese automotive manufacturers, particularly if they're just making parts, a lot of them now um, are very expensive to get into China. So what they're looking at is, hey, we can set up a factory in China 
serve not only the China market, but then also the Southeast Asian market. And as the Southeast Asian market grows and the China market grows, then we'll just set up as an additional facility, let's say in a Vietnam or Thailand or Malaysia. So the China factory can support the China business, then the Southeast Asian factory can support you know, Southeast Asian. So these are some of the things that are, and processes that are starting to happen. So it's not necessarily, you know, again, that somebody's just moving a cup of coffee from one country to another, or that they're going to basically rip out by the roots uh, the manufacturing that's currently in the country. It's that as these things continue to evolve, they'll just start putting their resources in other locations. I read a note this morning. Um, I think it was this morning, and China's kind of started also tracking how you know uh, beyond manufacturing. They're also tracking services. Um, and is there? And I don't know this. This is like an open question. But is there? You know, as you go through different stages of development, ag- agrarian, and then industry manufacturing. I would imagine um, the current state is also um, catalyzing this need to become a bit more service oriented. And so moving manufacturing or moving the production of certain types of industries into into other markets, um, do you think that's going to fuel China to kind of pivot into into the service sector? It's a good question. Um, I, I don't have a full answer. My answer would be China's approach to manufacturing is very much uh, similar to Germany's, right? where they want to have certain industries where they're an economic powerhouse to help fuel industry. What we do see, though, is there are service sectors that are coming up side by side with that, right? whether it's you know online ordering. right? Online ordering helps fuel uh, small manufacturers or even small farmers. So there's there's a lot of progress in that. When you when you look at kind of the shift in manufacturing, it's still primarily driven by uh, labor cost and also regulations overall. When companies moved to Vietnam, for example, particularly during the trade war, they weren't necessarily doing it because Vietnam was much better than China. They were doing it because there were less tariffs and perhaps the environment at that time was a little bit easier to deal with. Uh, so to your point, I think, you know, again, what we're seeing is, is there will be some evolution. Uh, the other thing is, as you know, a lot of people or a lot of workers here no longer want to work in factories, right? They whether be a, a Meituan delivery driver for food or a restaurant. But yeah, what you see is, and so manufacturing, again, is, uh, to your point, uh, Ali, is not going to have as many workers as it used to. And so what we are seeing is also a huge manufacturing shift into automation and robotics and other types of services, right? They have RAS, which is robotics as a, or robots as a service, um, you know, of course, software as a service SaaS. So there's all kinds of new ways of business and operations that we're going to start to see coming up because it's needed within the industries. And so this is kind of the next phase of development, at least in manufacturing, is that a lack of workers that are available to go into the workforce for a variety of reasons. How do we move into the next step where we need to automate? We need to uh, transform our manufacturing processes using robotics, automation, you know, software. So that's kind of the next stage. And all of that will require some form of service, right? You're going to need technicians to come in. You're going to need software engineers and designers. You're going to need user interface designers to kind of all work on that. So that is kind of how, to your point, it's all going to go hand in hand a bit as the growth continues. So getting back to our current situation, can you comment on the flow of human capital in and out of China? I mean, certainly we've experienced border closers now for almost two years regarding the first level of the pandemic. How is this going to further impact business travel rules and other operations in China? 
if I had the answer to that, I'd be, you know, I'd be in a much better place, to be honest. You know, I think a lot of people initially were of the opinion of we're going to ride this out. You know, China was safe. The virus wasn't really here. And yes, it was a bubble, challenging to get in and out. Sometimes you couldn't. But you could travel and do things inside of China. But now that sentiment, as you said, after two years is starting to shift rapidly, particularly with the latest lockdowns in Shenzhen, Jilin, and Shanghai. Because two years has passed and there's no end in sight. Uh, people can't see that light at the end of the tunnel where they can go, okay, just another couple months or another six months or whatever. And then we can kind of move forward. In Beijing, it's estimated the city has lost 50% of the foreigners that lived there. In Shanghai, it's about a third. And unfortunately, the trend is accelerating. We're looking to see more of an exodus at the end of the school year in June, and even more so if the policies continue in December at the end of the year. Business travel has been incredibly affected, as you know, uh, but also have families. You know, those of us who work here, live here, you know, contribute to society, we can't even get our own family in. This is by far the biggest issue that foreigners and the foreign business community here have faced. It's not just mobility to come in and out, but it's also that family can't get in. And so that is the, this is the one factor that's really grating on a lot of people, and some are choosing just to leave rather than wait it out. I think the first year of the pandemic, it was less of an effect, honestly, because the year U.S., Europe, and other places had COVID challenges of their own, and China was safe. You know, so there were other issues to focus on. You know, particularly if you were in business here, home office would often tell you just keep the China business stable and profitable because it helps support global operations through this challenging time. You know, one of the one of the results out of that survey done by AmCham last week was that 81% of companies reported China's management of COVID-19 impacted their ability to retain staff, which is a massive challenge, particularly if you have unique technologies or even investment plans. You know, no CEO in his right mind or her mind is going to prove investment, particularly of large sums of money, without coming to see it. You know, the pre-COVID business execs that would visit, you know, negotiate, approve investments and other decisions, all of that has stopped. And since COVID travel in general is much less than what it was even pre-COVID, you know, it didn't matter really because a lot of places like Vietnam, Singapore, you couldn't travel there anyway. But now that's changed. And except for very few places like China, it's all opening up. And what you could see if China remains closed past this December is you could see a sea change in businesses, not only their operations, but also their investment plans, their staffing plans, and how they want to continue to do business here. Does that mean they're going to leave? No. But again, it means they could start to look for other opportunities and priorities. You know, and one of the biggest issues, Bryson, you and I have talked about this uh, before, is that it used to be 10 years ago, 15 years ago, you know, when I was at Microsoft or you were at McCann, you know, we'd go back to the States and we'd talk to the people at home office and, you know, there'd be, there'd be this informal communication kind of going back and forth, right? And that really helped grease the, grease the wheels of business, you know, helped build understanding and communication. But all of that has stopped and everything. And one of the biggest issues between, our, between the U.S. and China at the moment is that even the government officials haven't talked to each other except by phone or Zoom or, you know, whatever platform. They have not met face-to-face for years. And so this is one of the biggest issues now facing because not only is there a lack of trust, but there's just no understanding of what's actually happening. So, you know, it'll continue. If to your question about how will border closures continue to affect, that's that's how it's going to affect. And if again, if we see it go past December, uh, you're going to start to see even more people leave. I think that's a really good point. I think when things are going well here, 
and the overseas office uh, doesn't necessarily have to have to intervene in any such way. Besides the the soft communications and the visits and the dinners with the staff and going to visit the client. I mean, those things are really important, even in the advertising business. But when things start to go wrong, when business starts to go belly up, or you start to become suspicious of graft or corruption or things happening, there's really no way to solve it from a remote perspective. I think that for some companies, that will be enormously frustrating. From a long-term perspective, I think it's different for different uh, industries. I, I think anyone that's in the manufacturing business is going to be impacted significantly. A lot of what we do within the service industry can still be conducted through through con calls, through Zoom invites, etc. But I think the need for us to be, you know, we're essentially, from an advertising perspective, we're essentially an insights business. We're a, a consumer in, a business. So absent of that contact with the consumer, with the shopper, uh, you know, it makes it a bit more difficult for for any advertiser, any strategist, to then make timely, accurate recommendations on the type of content or the type of ad that someone would want to see. At the end of the day, it affects banking and the financial services industry differently. It affects um, manufacturing differently. It probably affects logistics, et cetera, differently. Long term, not good. Immediate term, I think, you know, within the next three months, any any project that's on the plate, you know, that still can can be delivered and and and, and business runs as as is. Um, but long term, I, I can see it having you know an impact on the quality of work that's generated by uh, at least creative companies. I know you mentioned that there was no end game, but it would be possible to make a prediction. Uh, I think uh, restrictions are going to continue off and on. So I, th- I think there will be you know once at least in, in our case, once Shanghai cases get down to you know even double, maybe if we're like single digits, you know they'll start to open things up and there will still be some restrictions. Longer term, though, I think we'll continue to see some form of rolling lockdowns and continued challenges. Uh, I don't really think China as a whole will really open up until probably mid-2023, maybe the end of 2023. I was in a discussion the other day with somebody who said, oh, it'll be 2025. And I kind of pushed back and said, well, that's kind of ridiculous. And they said, well, we're already halfway there. And I'm like, oh, that's a good point. So I, I think the challenge really is, you know, we have to look at it from... The local government perspective, their whole focus is on public safety. Everything else is secondary, no matter what. And so, yes, it's challenging, and it's you know very in Chinese we say mafan, right? It's very troublesome. It's annoying. Um, it's a bit scary, to be honest. But at the end of the day, they feel that this is the only way that they can control it. Because to be fair to them, I mean, this is a city of about 30 million people. If it really got loose and people started to get scared, everybody would just go to the hospital and it would completely collapse the system. And then everything else would start collapsing. And so I don't necessarily blame them um, for feeling that they have to take this path. I think there are are other options that potentially could be considered, but just in terms of what they're doing, uh, in their mind, it's all about the public safety and nothing is going to get in the way of that. Not the economy, you know, not working from home, not ships at the port, nothing is getting in the way of public safety. Do you think there's the possibility that we could vaccine our way out of the problem and maybe even look at the opportunity of importing foreign vaccines? So on the, on the, the foreign vaccine question is interesting, as are the foreign medicines, because there was an official statement from the Shanghai government in mid-March, and it's the first time that it's been mentioned in any official government communication in China that foreign vaccines and medicines should be considered. 
you know, I think a lot of us here are hopeful that, that that will come to fruition at some point because it will help the situation. But the other thing to look at is even if it does, there's over a billion people here, almost 1.5 billion people. It would take a significant amount of time, longer than a year, if not, you know, two years, to really complete the process. And that's even if we started today. The Shanghai government has recently been giving out food care packages because the traditional food distributions, retailers, and markets have stopped. What have you received so far, Cam? Any mystery vegetables? Any surprises? I received a bag from the government that had a few carrots, potatoes, a cabbage, and a few other types of veggies. I think some um, spinach. And it's interesting to see who receives the bags because we send the pictures in our in our little um, communication groups, our WeChat groups. And you're not, you can actually see not everybody got the same, but also the evolution. You know, in the beginning, it was a lot of greeny leaf vegetables. Somebody got a broccoli, some uh, cabbage, some lettuce, some spinach. Uh, but then it's actually evolved into like celery, uh, carrots, uh, potatoes, you know, things that will last longer. Yesterday, I even got a squash, you know. So those are types of vegetables that will actually last longer than the green vegetables will. So I found that to be an interesting change. You know, one of the challenges I think we discussed earlier is it's difficult to order food. Uh, restaurants are closed. Uh, grocery stores are offline mostly. You can't visit any, anything because you're locked inside your apartment. And food was often ordered through the online apps. So, you know, before you could order something, and it would be at your house in an hour. Uh, now that's not the case. Sometimes you get it, sometimes you don't. But generally, I've gotten something about every two to three days. And in the compounds we all live in, you know, as I mentioned, there is a barter system uh, that's erupted overnight. So we're trading all kinds of things. Today, I traded some uh, some dumplings for a soup mix of cabbage and carrots that I was making. So, you know, it's challenging for sure. It is a concern. But I think overall, you know, at least on, on my side for us, we're, we're doing okay. So, Cameron, here comes the end of the show. And this is our famous A-B test. It's simply what it is. A and B, you give two choices. In this case, though, A stands for Ali, B stands for Bryce. And we know that you're from Seattle, so we've got a number of Seattle uh, inquiries for you here. So let's start off with the most famous one. Bill Gates or Jeff Bezos? Bezos. Pushi or Pudong? Pudong, or as I like to call it, Poo Awesome. Pudong is Poo Awesome? Seriously? Absolutely. Jimi Hendrix or Paul Allen? Oh, difficult question. The best left-handed guitarist in the history of mankind or the man who saved my beloved Seahawks, but I'll have to go with Hendrix. NYU or the University of Washington? Love them both, but I'll have to go with the UW. Go dogs. Gansu beef noodles or pho? Uh, Gansu beef noodles. No in all the way. Oracle or SAP? Oracle. And finally, the Seattle Space Needle or the Shanghai Pearl Tower? Space Needle. My mother was the first uh, civilian in the Space Needle. Um, so I have to go with my beloved uh, hometown... Uh, Landmark, the Space Needle. That's incredible. She was the first civilian inside the Space Needle around the time of the World's Fair. That's right. She um, um, she was a child, but my grandfather ran the unions down there that helped construct it. That's awesome. Thank you very much. Thanks to everyone for joining us today. Thanks for being on the show, Cam. Really appreciate it. Yep. Thanks, Bryce and Ali. And hopefully we can do it again when all this is over. Yeah, definitely. Love to get together. Looking forward to it. Join us next week for another exciting show. And to all our listeners, until then, have a great day. Bye.